Good morning, Sanctuary. Welcome back, those of you that are students, back to T-Town. We're glad you're here. Hope you had a wonderful summer. Um, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 23 here in just a moment. Uh, I want to let you know the leadership team of Sanctuary over the summer, uh, we, we got struck by, or were struck by a text that is very familiar, I think, to most of you in Micah 6 and verse 8, where God is saying, this is what I want from my people. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically he says, I want you to do justice. I want you to love mercy. And I want you to walk humbly with your God. And so that verse, we were thinking about how can we, we're thinking about the fall, think about what we're going to do, the focus over the next year, how we should orient our focus. And we thought this is a great text to sort of form us in our minds about what we do and make sure that everything that we kind of orient ourselves to either capture this notion of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. And this particular uh, exercise we just did and this offering just raised for the uh, uh, backpacks. It's really a justice issue. It's us trying to bring hope and help to people that in some way on the underside of power, a lot of these kids are going to be getting these backpacks, over 300 backpacks that we put together, or 300 backpacks we put together. It's got personal hygiene supplies and school supplies in it, and they're going to be uh, sort of distributed uh, all uh, in about 10 different schools. We're giving them to teachers who know their students. We'll get them to students that are in need. And uh, it's just, a be- I think it's just beautiful because I think what it's doing is it is brought to them by the love of God and people who care. And so we th- thank you guys for doing that. Just you're awesome. We love it. Okay. All right, so our text is Jeremiah 23. This is out of the lectionary for this particular week. And so we snagged it. It's just a small uh, piece of the text. But it's Jeremiah 23 and 23. It says, am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. This is a argument being made here that God is telling us, listen, I'm not just a God who's nearby. I am, but I'm also a God who's far away. It's kind of an odd argument at first blush, particularly if you're a charismatic or an evangelical, because most of us live for making God nearby, right? We, we want to have a sense of his now. We want to, we want to have his close presence, we trust God. We use our faith to see miracles happen. And miracles seem to scream, God is nearby. And uh, here God is saying that he is indeed the God who's nearby. But he's not just the God who's nearby. He's also a God who is far away. So let's talk about this. Um, but let me begin with a few theoretically oriented ideas, and which are completely unpractical points that will not immediately help you in any way. But sometimes theology is like that. It's a little bit fuzzy. It's a little bit big. It's a little bit awe-inspiring, and it doesn't immediately seem applicable. But if you get it in your system, it's like vitamins. It'll start working good into you, but it takes a little bit. This idea of God's nearbyness is referring, or is referred to by theological thought as God's Imminence, his imminence. What that means is God's present. He's in stuff. He's in creation. He's in time. 
He's in space. He's in the spatial dimension. He's actually present. He is God who fills all in all, one verse says. In Colossians 1 and 17, it says, God is before all things. He's before all things. In other words, he was here before there was anything. And in him, in God, all things hold together. There's this ancient uh, idea in Christian thought that God is the only being of substance because everything that we see came out of nothing. And the only reason it came out of nothing is because God pulled it and created it. And it's not only that he created it, he's got to sustain it. Because if he doesn't sustain it, it'll go back into nothing. The, uh, the old uh, language, ex nihilo, that out of nothing God created. It was guys, uh, great church fathers like Augustine, who said that God didn't only create it, he had to sustain it. He has to be engaged in it. It's, it. It has to be worked on continually. It's not something he just did and then went away and read a Time magazine. Right? That God is engaged consistently and persistently in creation. It's like those of you that have raised children, you, know, you bring them to the, to the park and you put them on a swing. You don't just push them once. Right? Because they say, again, 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 and so you just, you have to sustain what you started. And the only reason you don't consistently sustain it is because you finally tuck her out. God never tuckers out. He's the one that created it, but he sustains it. And then the reason we woke up this morning is because God's very much alive. And God's very much engaged. And if he ever tires, that will suck for us. <laughs> Ex nihilo, baby. Right? This is God's imminence. He's holding it intentionally all together. He is present in our world and in our lives. But the Jeremiah text claims that he's not just a God who's nearby, but he's a God who's far away. This is caught in the theological concept of transcendence. Transcendence. Transcendence means that God isn't only in creation, he's outside of it. That he's not only in time, Limited by time, but he's outside of time. He is both present and yet further away than we could ever imagine. He is inside close, so much inside close that he could never get any closer to us. And infinitely far away at the same time. The notion of transcendence makes God the absolute other. (laughs) He's the absolute other. This is why the greatest commandment involves loving God and loving people. Because in the command of God, if we really want to love God in his other otherness, in his absolute otherness, we've got to love people who are not as other as he is. It's almost like a training ground that somehow you love them. It's kind of like a step of a stool, the highest absolute command, the highest command is loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. But the second command, the lower command is love your neighbor, right? And so what the idea is, if you practice loving your neighbor, you can get up to loving God. It's not that if you love God, you'll automatically love your neighbor. In fact, John says, if you cannot love the person you see, how can you claim to love the God whom you don't see? He's saying, listen, You've got to practice loving the other, and God's the otherest other. How I many you know? You know, you know how it is when we get with people. The thing that freaks us out about them is they're other. They're not normal, which means like us. 
Like getting married. Those of you remember, I remember I got married the first year. First couple of years, I couldn't figure out why Gil wasn't normal. <laughs> which was like me. Why didn't she think like a man? Right? Why didn't she just agree with everything? I still kind of feel that way, but I understand now. <laughs> I'm still working on it. I'm working on my likeness and image as much as I can. But how many of you know that the dawning of relationship and friendship is the dawning of respect for the other? It was sin that made us hide the parts that were different. Do you remember when in the story, in the narrative, when Adam and Eve sinned, their hands were involved in the sin, but they didn't cover those hands. The mouth was involved with the sin. They ate, but they didn't cover their mouths. What did they cover? The parts that were different. So we're afraid of being seen in our otherness. Or we try to make everyone just like us. And so God calls us to love each other. It's the second commandment, but you gotta work on it. Because if you can't love the other, how can you ever say you love the otherest other? It's God. The transcendent, the one who is so completely unlike us. He is so transcendent. He is so other. And yet, in a way that seems rather confusing, he's also the one that's totally with us. He's totally imminent, which is the reason why there's such a thing called incarnation. Where God is like us. Where in some sense he becomes us. And yet at the same time, he's completely not us. You cannot use this information. It is completely unusable. But it's completely awesome. Completely awe-inspiring. These thoughts undo us. These thoughts... <laughs> but we're a people that must be undone. We're a people that must bump against God where we realize when you jam transcendence and you jam the concept of eminence into one place, you realize this is a God who cannot be figured out. This is a God who is mysterious. But see, there's something in us, particularly we moderns, particularly we modern evangelical charismatics, we do not want to figure, well, we want to figure everything out. We think there is no such thing as mystery. We don't understand that we're in the back end of the enlightenment, that the scientific mindset was there is no mystery. If you can divide it up, if there's mystery, it's because you're lazy. You can divide this up, cut it up, figure it out, boil it down, and you can come up with what's actually going on. And that's what we want to do. What's actually going on on the table? It's just what's going on here? It's the body of Christ. What is it really the body of Christ? You know, I think it's just bread. We just kind of, we've got it all figured out, see? We've got it all figured out. Not realizing... We can't figure it all out. And then by trying to figure it out, we lose the sense of mystery. And by losing the sense of mystery, we make God something he's not. We reduce him to nothing. Huh. That's why I love the table. I, it's so unpractical. God in the bread. Why? What for? It's bewildering. It's even divisive on some level. Right? Jesus, when he was preaching on it in John 6, he's talking, he's talking to the crowd and they're looking at him. He says, guys, you know how the bread came down from heaven and the manna and landed on the earth? You know how supernatural that was? And you guys, the story is we picked up the bread and ate it. You remember that? Yeah. He said, I'm the bread of heaven. Okay. He said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood will have eternal life. And they're all kind of looking at him going, this is a little weird. 
telling us? He wants us to eat his body, drink his blood. Does anybody else think that's a little strange? This is a little strange. So much so that they started to leave. In fact, the whole crowd left. I've offended people, but they've not all left. (laughs) Thank you, people. (laughs) They all left, and then Jesus looked at the apostles. Is that you guys leaving too? I mean, he didn't say, oh, wait a minute. I just metaphor here, metaphor. (laughs) He let them be confused. You know something about God? that I've discovered that I really don't like about God, but it is, well, I kind of like it, but I don't like it, is he doesn't mind if I'm confused. He doesn't feel like he has to explain everything. Just read the book of Job. Job never knew what was going on. You know, we kind of read into it, you know, because we have the backstory. Job didn't know. And God never seemed to care that he didn't explain himself. He just looked at Job and said, you going to trust me? And before you answer that question, where were you when I made the stars? You should trust me, Job. So the whole story is about a God who never explains himself and a man who chooses to follow a God who doesn't explain himself. And that, my friend, is the story of faith. Right? So here we are called. When I love it, when we come to this table, it's the place of absolute mystery. There's a a text that uh, Colton threw me uh, from uh, Stanley Hauerwas this week. I want to read it to you. It isn't exactly what we're talking about, but it's good enough to slap you up with it. He says, quote, Stanley Howard is a genius, by the way, if you can Google him, he's a brilliant Methodist theologian. The Eucharist is usually not considered an essential aspect of Christian worship by those concerned with church growth. Evangelism means getting people to church because unless we go to church, it is assumed our lives are without moral compass. Thus the assumption that lack of attendance at church and our society's moral decay go hand in hand What such people fail to see is that such decay begins with the assumption that worship is about my finding meaning for my life rather than the glorification of God. Such evangelism is but another name for narcissism. Christian worship requires that our bodies submit to a training otherwise unavailable so that we can become capable of discerning those who use the name of Jesus to tempt us to foreign worship foreign gods. Without the Eucharist, we lose the resource to discover how these gods rule over our lives, end quote. What's he saying? Somehow in this table, this mystery of this table, we are called to honor God and to love him even when we don't understand it. I'll be honest with you. This is why I love to come to church week in and week out for the last 10 years of my experience is because I, I mean, I love to hear the messages of the scripture, but you know what? I can get podcasts of people preaching. Just by name where I am. I love to gather together and sing songs of worship, but I have, an, I have music that's recorded that I can play anywhere I am, in the car, at my home, and I can worship God anywhere. But you know what? The Eucharist, the only place where it's valid is when we gather, when we're together. It's a call to the table together. And somehow it's when I come, I come because I thought about it this morning when I was coming, I thought, God, I just want to come and gawk at you and then adore you. Somehow in my heart, I pretend he's actually here. (laughs) I love that. That's why some of us love to sort of bow as we approach the table, just a little. We're not big bowers in American culture. You know, we, 
we, we, some of us charismatics, we like to raise our hands. You remember the first time you ever raised your hand or saw somebody raise their hand in a church context? It was like, that's weird. Remember that? And now, you know, we're, most of us are kind of like, <laughs> we don't have any problem with this raise. You know, because the Bible says about three or four times, you know, lift your hands on you people, right? So that's cool. But bow? Where do we ever do that? I mean, it, it only says in the Bible, 50 plus times, 50 plus times. Not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven, eight, not nine, not 10, not 20, not 30, not 40. 50 plus times bow before the Lord. So when do you do that? At home? You Bible believers. <laughs> do that when you go to work? Do you bow before the Lord? When do you ever bow before the Lord? Maybe... Maybe when we say, welcome, Lord Jesus, occasionally we could bow. Maybe when the blessing is prayed over us, maybe we can occasionally bow. You say, well, it'll feel good. You're exactly right. We'd be the bowing church. <laughs> Think of that. Just lit- taking the Bible literally. <laughs> a lot of that. <laughs> okay, enough on practicality. Let's jump to the place where these ideas become practical, at least devotionally practical, because after all, we are evangelicals. All right, Jeremiah 23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so I can't see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? See, he is declaring that he is the God of nearby and that he is the God of far away, and there's a reprimanding tone here. He's saying, how dare you think I'm only with you nearby? I am also with you when I'm far away or when I seem far away. You are never in a place where I don't see you. You're never in a place that I'm not with you because I fill everything that is. I only used to believe that God was with me when I, and was attending to me and caring for me when I was in a great place spiritually. You know, when I sense his presence and his power and my, I was cultivating a yes in my heart. That's when he was nearby or, or I, when he was with me, only when he was nearby. I thought that, 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 that when I had prayers answered, that evidence that he was with me, he was nearby, that when all the circumstances of my life seemed to be flowing okay and in the right direction, he was with me then, he was nearby. But when I was not in a good place spiritually, when I was more like a pagan in my soul, or when my prayers just didn't get answered, or when the situations around me grew worse and it seemed like I'm praying and it's getting worse, that God, I would think, God, where are you? And in this text, it's declaring rather pointedly, how dare you think I'm only with you when you see miracles happen? How dare you think I'm only with you when you feel like everything's okay? How dare you think I'm with you when you feel forgiven and everything's sweet? And not think I'm with you when you're acting like a pagan. And not think I'm with you when everything's falling apart. Because I'm a God that's nearby and I'm a God that's far away. Wherever you are, I am God. I fill heaven and earth. Don't limit me to the happy spaces. I'm in all spaces, even the devastating places and spaces. I am there with you. And this messes with us. Particularly those of us who are charismatics and we love to contend for God's now presence in prayer and, and worship and living by faith. 
I mean, I remember back in the 70s when I first heard this challenge of living by faith and there was a movement that kind of came to be known, the faith movement. And I loved the idea of intentionally trusting God for his will to be done on the earth. And I love the idea of intentionally uh, really moving toward God in trust to see his promises come to pass in the world. When I discovered that faith could actually move mountains, that faith on some level could actually change what was, John said, faith overcomes the world. And that we could trust his kingdom to come and his will to be done. That if that would just happen sovereignly, he would never have asked us to trust him. That somehow human beings are engaged and involved in this process of miracles. It seemed like just such a beautiful balance to me between acknowledging God's transcendence and acknowledging God's imminence that somehow we could see things change. But there was an oddness about the whole movement that I think our text of Jeremiah addresses. Because the oddness was, is that it seemed like we would think that God was only really the God of miracles. That he was only the God of good times. And that he had nothing to do with the faraway things. That somehow, if he seemed far away, it was either because one, I was in sin, two, the devil was attacking me, or three, there was a lack of faith on my part. And even though it's true, I mean, if you, if you live in sin, life will suck on a deep way and God will seem very far away. And we will come under the attack of the devil and it'll seem like God's far away. And when we, if our faith gets shipwrecked, it'll seem like God is far away. But what this text is saying is that God isn't thrown by your sin. He's still there, even though he feels far away, because he's the God of far away. That he's there when you're under the attack of the devil. And he's there when your faith is shipwrecked. That he's there all the time, smack in the midst of faraway places. Don't think, and he reprimands us in this text because he's saying, how can you say that I'm only with you in nearby places when you feel me, when you emotionally sense you're forgiven or you see somehow my manifestation in your life? Manifestation means God comes open in your life. He openly displays himself in some way. There's the word manifestation we get from a Latin word that means the dancing hand. He said, don't just think, How dare you think I'm only present when I'm dancing with you, that I'm manifesting myself to you. He says, because I am not just the God of the nearby. I am the God of far away. I'm in those places when you do not see me, you do not sense me, everything is going wrong in your life. He takes offense at the fact that we would dare declare he's not in all spaces with us, leaning into our lives. The psalmist picks up on this. In Psalm 139, he says in verse seven, man, where can I go from your spirit? I mean, where can I flee from your presence? Transcendence, imminence, you're everywhere. You're here and far away. He said, if I go to the heavens, you're there. But if I make my bed in the depths, he's saying, if I make my bed and ever make your bed in hell. God bless you, I see that hand. I see that hand. I made my bed in hell. But he said, even if you made your bed in hell, he says that somehow you're there. You're present in the far away. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, I settle on the far side of the sea. The idea is running from God. Even there, when you're running from God, you'll run into his hand (laughs) that will guide you. His right hand that will hold you fast. You little rebellious twit, he has you. 
I was in the DFW airport just about a week ago. And one of those two-year-olds had one of those straps, like those doggy strap things going on. And she's just had her going after him. The little just mom is just walking along, you know. Anyway. <laughs> See, some of you, that's, God, that's your basic relationship with God right there. But he still has you. He says, if I say, verse 11, surely the darkness will hide me. I'm such an idiot. I have crossed the line. I have crossed the line that was the line. I've crossed into an unline, an uncharted. I mean, I have, I've gone where no one has gone before. He says, surely, and you say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light around me. The light is, things are so dark that even the light that is around me is night. That's how bad it is. The light you have is night. That's just not, I've been here. Where the light I had was night. And he said, even the darkness will not be dark to you and the night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. See, when I was in that camp, where we always talked about faith, it was like we believed that the only acceptable place for God was the nearby. That we should always use our faith to fight so that God stayed in our perceptible nearby. And it was like we were in charge of it all. And don't misunderstand me. I love to trust God. I believe that we should use our faith. I believe that our words are important. I believe in a lot of this stuff that that we would learn in that context that somehow human beings actually have authority in God's heart and that we can stand for God as kings in the world. But that presumes we're priests in our heart. That we're surrendered and submitted to a God who's with us no matter what's going on. The text that was really famously used, I think still many use this text, uh, Mark eleven twenty two and 23, it says, have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And I remember hearing leaders in this particular movement uh, say that this literally meant have faith in God. If you look at it in the Greek, have faith in God literally means have the faith of God. And I remember hearing that, have the faith of God. And the implication was that just like God in the beginning created the world with words, that if we would believe our words and we have that same, in other words, God used faith to create the world and we can use faith. I actually heard one of the guys say, the only reason we can't create the world is because we're not smart enough. But we have the same faith God has. Now, let me be really clear about this and without being insulting. When Jesus said, have faith in God, What he literally meant was have faith in God. God does not need faith. Faith is not a thing. It's not a force. The word faith literally means, actually means, trust in, rely on, and cling to. God does not have to trust in, rely on, and cling to anything or anyone. You do not have the faith of God. You are not God. There is a God. You are not him. Right? Now, that doesn't mean, again, that, 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 that there's, you know, that there's not, I mean, well, let me say this first. Even a casual reading of scripture, I mean, to the new, newbie, reading through the Bible, one of the things you'll leave after reading it is human beings are not in charge. 
So if you ever read it and twist it so that you come out thinking you're in charge, go back. <laughs> Follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> Again, don't misunderstand me. Our faith impacts stuff. I mean, you know, like the wind impacts the world. I was looking out there this, in between the services, and you can see just a gentle wind just out there right now. The, the top of the trees are just a little gentle wind. Sometimes that's all it does, but sometimes it can rip apart a whole city when it's tornadic or a hurricane. Wind can be powerful. See, our faith sometimes just gently influences as we're raising children, as we're trusting God in our relationships, our marriages. It can gently, sweetly change things. But sometimes our faith is actually can destroy stuff, mountains, push them out of the way, can, can actually take charge of things. I mean, I've been in, in certain circumstances where we trusted God and it literally, that, that whatever was going on, the bad that was going on just got blown away. It was like a tornadic prayer and authority and beautiful and powerful. It's beautiful. But, but here's the problem. Not every time you pray or use your words is that it, not every wind is a tornado. Thank you. You're not that big of a deal most of the time, right? God, in fact, what I would suggest to you is that somehow when we're using our faith and when we're trusting him on some level, we've got to have a suspicion that only one that knows how powerful this is is God and we stay humble to him. Your wind that you produce with your mouth and your faith doesn't control the whole world. How many of you have been watching what's been going on in Europe or in, in Egypt the last couple of weeks, right? All that stuff that's going on. Uh, what if somebody told you, you know, what if you heard an analyst on CNN say, well, we're not exactly sure, but we're pretty sure that what happened right before this disruption occurred and all this uh, social upheaval happened, that the wind that was heading westerly shifted and it was coming from the south. And that's why this has happened. Or what if you were talking to somebody and they said, oh man, I got this whole report from the doctor, but I knew it was coming. How'd you know it was coming? Well, when I got out of the house, I felt like the wind that was coming from the south, it kind of shifted, started coming from the east. It was so weird. And I'm telling you, I knew something was, you'd say, you're an idiot. (laughs) The wind doesn't have anything to do with politics and it doesn't have anything to do with this that just happened. Listen, sometimes your faith and your words have nothing to do with what's going on. Well, this is this is one of the big. I remember back in the heyday of the late seventies and early eighties, a lot of people thought they were controlling the whole world with their words. Now, this is obviously an overstatement, but it shows you how things can get. Is I was talking to this guy from Chicago, and he was telling me that it's never going to snow again in Chicago. I said, "Why?" He said, "Because I'm confessing it." Now, obviously, it's a little crazy. I said, "Well." Why? What are you going to do if it snows? You know, it's, it's a lie of the devil. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I was talking to this, that Mark and I, my brother Mark and I were talking one time, and he used to be really, really skinny, and I've always been fairly chubbed. And uh, he, <laughs> it's not funny at all. <laughs> uh, but Mark, you know, he would put his hand, when we were with people, you know, he'd put his hand on my head and go, Cookies. And then he put his hand on his own head and say, no cookies. 
I might start crying here, uh, Brent. <laughs> Can I see you afterwards? <clears throat> so I would say to him, thinking, I, you know, I had to come up with something, and my lame response was, well, if you got any skinnier, you'd drive and blow away. <laughs> lame. Well, you know, that would, we did that, you know, you know our brothers are. Well, we were doing it at a church. It was kind of after church, and this lady was listening to us banter. And when I said that, you know, you, you're going to drive, you're going to, you know, you're going to drive, blow away. She came, I mean, literally, she came up to me, she grabbed my arm, and she said, don't, don't say that over him. I said, what? Don't say, you have power in your words. I said, I don't think he's going to drive and blow away. There's like no real chance of that happening. Now, obviously, this is extreme weirdness, but, but, but you understand. <laughs> the problem, here's what I have a problem with when it comes to faith, is this. Faith is trusting in the being of God and standing in his name in the earth. What it isn't is witchcraft. And witchcraft is people, is a person. Using witchcraft is a person who thinks that they can manipulate people, manipulate circumstances by incantations. And they have little books of incantations that they speak over circumstances and they speak over people and they do things to change and control the world. If you're not careful, you'll use the precious principles of faith and confession to be a witch or a warlock in the world. Okay. (laughs) What we're being asked to believe here by God in closing is that God is present with us in the horrible places. And even in the times, you know, when we think, oh my gosh, you know how people say it's always the darkest right before it turns totally black. (laughs) Do you ever feel like that? Even there, God's there. When we feel like there's no God, that he's asleep at the wheel, he's right there. And what God is saying in this text is he's saying, listen, if you're sitting here this morning with a disease ravaging your body and all of a sudden you feel God's warmth all over you and you're instantly healed and you think, my gosh, God is with me. And you want to open, my gosh, God is with me. Is no different than if you're sitting here this morning and a disease is ravaging your body and you feel like it's getting worse for sitting here. That God's presence is no less with you here than it is if he ex- you experience healing. Tell them I'm almost done. <laughs> it's no less. If you're sitting here this morning and all of a sudden after you get up and walk out, you get texts. The, you've been out of work and you get the best, jo- I mean, this dream job. And you go, oh, I, got th- I got this dream job. And you want to shout it from the mountaintops. You want to call your friends, your neighbor. My gosh, God, God has moved. He is actually present with you. But how dare you say he's present with you there and say he isn't present with you if you continue to be in unemployment and everything continues to fall apart. How dare you say he's not the God of far away. He is with you no matter what you're going through, which means to us, what we can say in that is we don't have to freak out when life goes sour. We don't have to freak out if we're acting like pagans and that we're not in a right place. We haven't gotten too far from God that at any place where we are, we can stop and just acknowledge him and not be rude to him. If he's always with us, stop being rude to him. He's in the car with you, even when you're acting like an idiot. 
So when you realize I'm an idiot, don't think you're too far away from God. Realize I'm an idiot, I'm far from God, but God is the God of far away. Hi. Hi, God of far away, because I definitely qualify I'm far away. Don't be rude to him. Not only that, but realize that because he's the God of far away, you don't have, you don't have to make faith just a personal thing. If you're in a place where you're not even sure you believe in him anymore, he's still right there with you. This is a great uh, quote from this lady, Madeline Langle. She's a novelist who just died just a couple years ago. She said this quote, sometimes I just know that I'm going to come down with an attack of atheism again. (laughs) It's like the flu, a spiritual flu, I call it. I get ready to endure three or four days of doubt and deep distance from God. Then through the grace of God, I find myself spiritually well again, end quote. See, it's okay if you're in doubt. God can handle your doubt. He's there when you think he's not. He's the God of far away. That's why we say the creeds. One of the things I love about the creeds, we believe in God the Father. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is come, we believe that he's coming back. And when we say those things, one of the things I love about that is that sometimes I can't believe all of it. But we can. I can lean on you. We pray our Father because he's our. It's the communion of saints. I don't have to judge God. If you're 25 years old today sitting here, you do not have to judge God on your 25 years of experience. You're connected to a history of over 2,000 years of saints who have followed God, who have had victories and defeats, and God has proven himself faithful. You don't, God is present with you even in the midst of your confusion. He's the God of far away. And then lastly, one of the ways that God expresses himself most strongly when he's far away, seemingly far away, is through something called common grace. Common grace is God's presence in, but it looks natural. It's Jesus when he said, the son, what about it? The father sent it. That's just the son. No, 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 it's not just the son. The father sent it. And the rain, it's just rain. No, the father sent it. In Acts 14, Paul talking to the pagans. He said, guys, God has given you the sun, the rain, the harvest, and all the joy that fills your hearts. Friendships, falling in love, holding babies. How many love babies? I love babies. I tell my, all my children, bring the babies. <laughs> right? Do you not love those babies? They're awesome. Then give them back when they wet themselves. But anyway, all of that is the goodness of God. Friendships are the goodness of God. God wants you. Common grace. You know what's the common grace? Stuff like medicine is common grace. It works for both the just and the unjust, just like the sunshine does. It works for the righteous and the unrighteous. Therapy. It's a good thing. It works for the just and the unjust. See, but I don't want to go to therapy. I want to trust the Lord. I don't want to take medicine. I want to believe God. Because God's only really with me if I believe him. He's nearby if I believe him. Well, what if he's there in the medicine too? What if he's there in the therapist? I was a gal that, in Wisconsin that, oh my gosh, I worked with her. We worked with her for so long. You're trying to get her to memorize a scripture, listening to tapes. I mean, getting her to confess the word of God over her life. Months and months, prayer meetings over that woman. And she was struggling, struggling a little bit with alcohol. And so she decided to go to this 30-day thing. Psychologist crap. <laughs> that was my view. I'm thinking, all right, great, you know, good luck. Because <laughs> yeah, you know, let's trust God here. Let's believe the Lord. She goes there and she got totally set free. 
deeply helped. It made me so mad. <laughs> how can God be in far away? How, God's not there. God's nearby. And he says, how can you dare say I'm not in the far away? In the common things. I got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes five years ago, and I was not a happy camper. I wanted to be healed. I wanted to be healed now. Why? Because getting healed is a lot easier than eating right. <laughs> or doing that thing you do, you know, that. <laughs> getting up off my blessed assurance and going to the gym. Are you kidding me? God, come on. Heal, my, heal myself. <laughs> be healed. But no healing came. I had to trust God to give me the courage to own it, right? And one of the tests they do, you know, the A1C thing that they do, you know, I, you know, you can normal persons about four point eight. Am I right on this doc? Where are you at, Doctor Vu? You in here? Yeah, four point eight, five point two, right, five ish. And uh, he's my doctor. And uh, <laughs> I'm eating right, doc. But anyway, um, <laughs> and exercising. <clears throat> <clears throat> but you know, I, you can tick up some diabetics and tick up into the sixes, sevens, higher. And so, at first, I was in the sixes and trying to fight to get lower. And but, but for the last year or so, I've been five point three. That's a miracle. But it's a miracle of far away. It's a miracle that I can actually not eat a whole cherry pie. Right? It's a miracle that I actually go to the gym. It's a miracle. <laughs> See, but it's not the kind of miracle I would rather have. I'd rather just have the instant kind because that's when God's really glorified, right? Right? But all of a sudden you hear Jeremiah. So you're saying to me, I'm the God of nearby and I'm not the God of far away. How 